Again, to the back of your Psalters, and page 64, we will read from Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all believers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted. According to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. On our series of sermons for the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have been particularly considering that spiritual authority which Christ has given unto his church. This is most important and relevant for us to understand, brothers and sisters, for we are a true expression of the church of Jesus Christ, a church in which Christ lives, reigns, and rules, administering his grace, revealing his glory. And as Christ is our king, we have to give great attention to that spiritual authority by which he rules. We gave some consideration two weeks ago to the words in Matthew 16 and verse 19, which the apostle Peter received from the mouth of Christ Jesus himself, where Christ speaking to Peter says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now it is most plain, not only from what we already, have already said about these words, but also by comparing other important passages of Scripture, that this concerned not only Peter, but also the, great, the entire number of the apostles. One way in which you can know that, children, that Christ gave his keys, his authority, to all the apostles, not only to Peter, is by what happened after he rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he suddenly appeared in a room where all his apostles were gathered. And suddenly there was Jesus in the midst of them. He said in John chapter 20, verse 21, Peace unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. 
So the responsibility as Christ's representatives to proclaim the forgiveness of sins upon believers and the retaining of sins upon unbelievers and unrepentant ones is clearly taught in this passage, not only for Peter, but for all the apostles. Indeed, he spoke to all the apostles in common, where he said in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. There's a chain of accountability there. How you treat Christ's representatives is how you treat Christ. How you treat Christ is how you treat God. And so you see how important this spiritual authority is. It concerns the honor and the authority of God and Christ. Where John Calvin speaks of particularly the preaching of the Holy Gospel, as also our catechism does, as being one of the primary ways in which this spiritual authority of the keys is administered, he has a very helpful um, statement. He says, Christ, in delivering us by his gospel from the condemnation of eternal death, looses the cords of the curse by which we are held bound. The doctrine of the gospel is therefore declared to be appointed for loosing our bonds, that being loosed on earth by the voice and testimony of men, we may be actually loosed in heaven. But as there are many who are not, who are not, only, are, who are not only are guilty of wickedly rejecting the deliverance that is offered to them, but by their obstinacy or stubbornness, bring down on themselves a heavier judgment. The power and authority to bind is likewise granted to the ministers of the gospel. You see, uh, for all the Reformed Church, we follow John Calvin in saying these keys which were given to the apostles in their preaching ministry is also entrusted to all ministers of the gospel. And so it remains a very important subject for us to understand rightly. We live in days in which the preaching of the gospel is profaned with wrong thinking about it, as though it were just another form of entertainment, as though it were something that could be taken or left, rather than the voice of Christ speaking in his church. With the Lord's help, let us consider three things concerning preaching the Holy Gospel. Preaching the Holy Gospel, we will see, first, it is commanded. Second, it is discriminating. And third, we will consider your relation to the preaching of the Gospel. First, we see that preaching is commanded, and that is surely an important part of our catechism. We see in Lord's Day 31, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Answer thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and public, publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. Indeed, it's almost difficult to summarize all the teaching of the Bible, for so much of the Bible tells us about preaching. Maybe, children, you've heard about how Enoch, the seventh from Adam, is described as a preacher of righteousness, as also was Noah in his own day. But you go through all the history of the Old Testament and Preaching was a common feature of all the people of God. The priests and the Levites had a responsibility to preach in the gathered congregation of the people concerning the word of God. And the prophets in particular had a great authority 
to proclaim the word of God unto the people. In our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all begin with the public preaching of that great prophet John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Of course, Christ himself is the model preacher, proclaiming the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and of salvation. But also his successors. You see this prominently, for example, in the Apostle Paul's Letters. He writes, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, preaching is the means by which Christ himself comes with power unto the hearts of sinners. This is why the gospel is described as the power of God unto salvation, where Paul frequently describes it in such terms, is particularly the preaching of the gospel, which he has in view. Preaching of the gospel for Paul was not just a choice, as though he got up one day and decided that he must do this with his life. No, you know that from the time in which he was converted from a persecutor of the church unto a servant of Christ, he had this burden laid upon him. He speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 12, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Of course, we've been speaking in one of our other series about the importance of evangelism, and surely we don't want to depreciate the evangelism that any Christian does. Every Christian should be a witness of Christ. Every Christian should be able to explain what it is that Christ has saved them, how it is that others can be saved. Every Christian should have a burden for souls, and every Christian should adorn their testimony of Christ with a holy Life, every Christian indeed, should seek to bring every thought captive unto Christ Jesus our Savior. But there is something in this, the authoritative proclamation of the word. You can imagine this, which I read from one preacher uh, who was speaking about this subject. He said, well, you could imagine if you were a prisoner on death row, if someone were to come alongside and tell you that actually you've been pardoned and you're not going to be executed, well, that would bring you a certain measure of comfort if indeed you could be proved to be true. There would be another level of assurance if indeed that person who came to you was an official representative of the state, someone like a police officer or the warden of the jail or an eternity of the court or something of that nature. So also there is something about the special blessing of the authoritative preaching of the word from those who are duly called unto such work. Mark 1 verse 22 describes Jesus' ministry in this way, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes, Christ himself, spoke with authority. Not the authority of man, but the authority of God. Not the authority of popular opinion, but the authority of the Spirit of God. He spoke by his own authority. And also as the mediator between God and man, we who preach do so in Christ's stead, as his ambassadors, as his representatives. And so it is on a different level of which we speak. The preaching 
And you can see this from those cases in which the word is used in the New Testament, especially denotes that of a herald, one who on behalf of a king cries out and testifies of the reign of the king of heaven. Paul spoke about this in Acts 20, verse 20 to 21, where he, in his departing speech unto the, um, the elders there in the church of Ephesus says, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. How central is this uh, form of preaching throughout the book of Acts as the, the apostles and the apostle Paul in particular go from city to city and they turn the world upside down. Why? Because Christ's ambassadors have come to say that there is forgiveness for sin for those who repent and turn from their sin and will believe on Christ Jesus, the Savior. These are those whom the Lord is pleased to use to establish his kingdom upon the soul, among the souls of men. The apostle spoke also to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. In, be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. But here we have some controversy with some of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think in particular of those who would say there is no specific office of a preacher in the New Testament, not of something that is distinctively set apart to the preaching of the word. Remember, I was speaking to um, a Christian from the Brethren context, and he said how important it was for him that it be an elder-led church, to which he especially meant that there should be no one no one who is actually set apart to be a preacher, for indeed they are all to preach in common. And even, we would say, among the Reformed Baptist churches um, who hold to a view that all of the elders can preach and administer the sacraments and that there is no specific office of a minister, we would also part ways. This is of God that there be those duly called unto the office of preacher, of the minister of the gospel. Listen at this point to what we read from the Westminster Larger Catechism, which has a very nice explanation of this point. In question 151, we read, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. By whom is the word of God to be preached? Answer, the word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. We spoke something of this two weeks ago, um, the biblical warrant for saying there is a unique gifting to the preaching of the gospel, which the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, is pleased to give to those whom he calls unto the office of minister of the gospel. We spoke, did we not, of that internal call whereby that person who is so gifted is persuaded and 
urged by the leading of the Spirit to seek such work, but also the external call whereby the church, through a vote of the congregation, calls them unto that work. We spoke, did we not, about how in the Great Commission itself, where Christ commands teaching and baptism, while also giving that commission until the end of the world, this would itself prove that there is a calling to an office for the performance of those duties. Likewise, we spoke of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders that rule be well counted worthy of double honor, especially those that labor in the word and doctrine. So among those who have the name elder, there are some elders who rule only, and they um, tend, uh, tend to the flock by discipling them and uh, seeking to administer the keys concerning discipline. But there are others who labor in the word and doctrine, such as are called elsewhere the ministers of the word or the ministers of the gospel. So therefore, where we see Paul as an extraordinary minister holding the office of an apostle, or we see Timothy or Titus holding the extraordinary ministerial office of an evangelist or a messenger of an apostle, we nevertheless see the pattern which holds true for all ordinary ministers of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, verses 2 and 3, where Paul writes to Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So that ministry, which was entrusted by Paul to Timothy, was also to lead to the building up of other men unto the same gospel ministry. Not extraordinary ministers like Paul and Timothy, but ordinary ministers. I think that this is very clear if you just read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Large sections of these passages of Scripture clearly would set forth a principle that the Lord would have such important work as the preaching of the gospel to be carried out by those duly called unto such work until the end of the gospel age. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 11 and following, we read, These things command and teach, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which, has, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto, thy, unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. Many things we could uh, gather from such sections as that, but in particular you have the principle that is through the laying on of hands by the presbytery or the elders, the presbyter, uh, the presbyters, I should say, that group of elders, whether collected together in an assembly of a local congregation like a consistory, or in a broader assembly, which we would call a classis or a synod, they have this uh, responsibility to carry on this preaching of the gospel by laying on of hands, denoting the separating unto this special work. Likewise, we do see that there are these passages that speak of the Lord especially uh, setting apart men unto this work, where the entire work of salvation hinges upon sending forth these duly called servants who are equipped by the Holy Spirit. In John 10, or, sorry, Romans 10, which we read together in our scripture reading, beginning at verse 14. How then shall they call on, on him 
in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Nor shall we neglect that glorious statement given at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which speaks of the gospel as that which God himself addresses the sinner in the preached word. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to it that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation now then we as or sorry now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. At the end of Romans chapter 10, likewise, you see Paul quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah in verse 21 of chapter 10. And there God says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. The preaching of the gospel, you see, is not merely a ritual. It is not merely something that we do because we have always done it. No, it is God himself pleading with sinners, seeking earnestly their salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is God sends those duly called that they may plead for you in Christ's stead, that they may pray for you, that the preaching may be effectual unto your salvation, that they may earnestly contend for your soul and labor for your salvation, and doing so not on their own behalf, but authoritatively on behalf of God himself. So it is that one of the early confessions of the Reformed Church spoke in this way, it said that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Where it is rightly expounded from the scriptures, where it is applied unto sinners faithfully, this is not man who speaks, but God himself. What shall we say of the preachers of the gospel, those whom are duly called unto this work? Well, We've already spoken something of the giftings unto this, but let me speak briefly. We read in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So central is this, that one would labor in the word, Labor in the original languages, Hebrew of the Old Testament, Greek of the New. Laboring to understand the whole counsel of God in order to rightly apply it. This requires not an ordinary understanding of the scriptures, but one that is extraordinary. One that comes by the Holy Spirit rightly gifting them to that work. Indeed, as that gifting is nurtured and stirred up through the context of a local congregation where those gifts can begin to be expressed. But also it is right and fitting that our church would also uh, join with other churches for the training up of men for the ministry, setting apart men to be teachers in our seminary that they may particularly carry on that command of the apostle to raise up other faithful men. And it is the, the gifting of understanding the scriptures, being mighty in the word of God, that is most important. But also, we cannot neglect also that capacity to love sinners for Christ's sake. 
Indeed, not merely a sort of humanitarian desire to save people from hell, but because a Christian man loves the Lord and wants to honor him, and because he loves souls, he is desiring to labor for the salvation of sinners. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. It can go in different ways for different men, I suppose. For myself, it was being a funeral director and hearing many a gospel sermon, so-called, from men who had no understanding at all of the way of salvation. And so they would speak unto their hearers in these funerals, and they would give no direction whatsoever as to how to be saved, how to place your faith in Christ, or even the exclusive nature of the gospel, that salvation is only by faith in the blood of Christ. And so it was that the Lord laid it upon me. And so must it be that we would pray that others, whether in our midst or from other gospel churches, would be raised up unto this great work. We must plead that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more laborers. For the laborers are few, you see, but the harvest is plentiful. The Westminster Larger Catechism is more uh, to say about this matter. How is the word of God to be preached by those who are called thereunto. They that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine diligently, in season and out of season, plainly, not in enticing words of man's wisdom, not in fancy talk, we would say, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of their hearers, zealously, with fervent love to God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming at his glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation. So thus far we've seen something of this command to preach. But to go further with this preaching which Christ commands, we may ask the question, where does he command this preaching to take place? Well, we would say, first of all, without hesitation, the covenant congregation, the gathered congregation of believers together with their children is to be the place where preaching takes place. In Acts 20, verse 25, that speech which the Apostle Paul gave to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, and now behold, I Know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching, the, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. He's going to go away. Therefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the flock which he hath purchased with his own blood. He goes on to speak of the ravening wolves of false teachers which will come into the church, and he again commends them to the Lord God and the word of his grace. Feed the flock. I commend you to the word. You see that it is the preaching in the local congregation that is, that pillar and ground of the truth in particular. You see this in so many ways. You go to the book of Revelation, and there you see that the ministers of the word are pictured as stars in the hand of the Lord Jesus himself as he protects and preserves them. Speaks about them in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 as the angels of the churches. So he speaks to the angel of the church of Ephesus or the angel of the church of Philippi and so forth. And he would address the whole church through their minister, through their preacher, for 
there is a special accountability there. And so it is that this preaching is the way by which Christ visits his people in the gathered congregation. But we are hastening to add as well that it's not only here that the preaching of the gospel is commanded. Even in that same speech given to the elders at Ephesus, uh, Acts 20, verse 20, the apostle says, How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. I would say that if you had a minister that only came up on the pulpit and otherwise vanished from the life of the church, never visited the people, never took an interest in their spiritual well-being, was not available to answer spiritual concerns, nor to disciple them, nor to encourage them in the things of the Lord, then I would say that is no shepherd at all. That is just a pulpiteer. So it is that the preacher is to go out from house to house where the people are, where the sheep are, and seek to minister the word to them there. But we hasten to add as well, is it really the case that even within the bounds of the people of God, he is to limit himself? Well, surely not. Was it not that we've been attending to special commands given to the church in particular? That they are to go and disciple all nations? that they are to go to the highways and to the byways and bid them to come to the marriage feasts. Indeed, we would look at the example of Christ himself did not limit himself to just preaching in the synagogue or going from house to house, but you see him there in Matthew 5 where he went up onto a mountain and when he was set, began to teach. Look in Luke chapter Six, verse 17, and he came down with them and stood in the plain, stood in a plain. And verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes onto his disciples and said, blessed be the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We look at Luke 5 and verse 1, where you see he actually is so pressed in by the people out there in the open air, he actually gets out on the boat and begins to teach the people by the side of, uh, of the water there in the ship itself. You see him going out into the midst of the feast of tabernacles in John chapter 7, right into the courtyard of the temple. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And then in verse 37, you see, he was not only teaching, he was preaching. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. You see, it is perhaps a neglected truth among the Reformed Church today, but every minister of the gospel is called to preach, not only within the bounds of the church walls, but to go out and to preach. I am persuaded of this. You see it among our fathers, whether George Whitfield or the Puritans or whoever you may look. They saw themselves as those who would not only stay within their communities, not only among believers, but would go and proclaim the gospel to whomsoever would hear, the everlasting gospel of grace. We understand, of course, not every minister has the same opportunities to do so. If I was called to a church in the middle of a rural community, I might only be able to go out unto the cows and preach to them, and that would do no good at all. But where the Lord gives opportunities, as indeed he has here in the city of London, this is surely something that is inseparable from anyone who would have a calling to the ministry. Surely that ought to be on the heart of, of every church. Do we have a minister who is indeed caring for souls in that way as well. And I am persuaded that the Reformed churches need to wake up to this fact, incorporating it into our training, into our investigations for those who are called, giving even those who are already called the encouragement and the training and the leading to do this as the Lord has called them. So therefore, we've seen it's commanded, and we've sought to address some very important matters for understanding the nature of this command. But let me also emphasize something else 
in our catechism, and that is that the preaching of the Holy Gospel is discriminating. Discriminating. I'll read again uh, all of question 84. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, notice that contrast, and on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. Now we see that there is not only the loosing, but also the binding. There is not only the opening with the keys, but also the shutting. There is this discrimination which takes place. Not that anyone and everyone will find the gospel to be good news, but only such as receive it in true faith, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which bears forth the fruits of true faith in repentance, holiness, and love. All the marks of grace indeed are involved in the right preaching of the gospel, for it is essential that those under the preaching of the gospel would be confronted with this question, do I have any right to conclude on the basis of Scripture that the gospel is good news for me. We could multiply the cases in which the Bible testifies that for the unbeliever it is not good news, but the wrath of God abides on them. Maybe the clearest example would be the Apostle Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. And to the one we are a savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. What would be a corruption of the word, according to Paul? What would be it? not to preach in sincerity, that would be to preach that anyone and everyone is saved, whether or not they believe, whether or not they repent. Such teaching is not biblical, and it is corrupting unto the hearers. It is the murder of souls to not preach the full counsel of God, not only the blessings of Christ in terms of what he has done for our salvation on our behalf, but also what he does in us, working the graces of faith and repentance in our souls. And it is in this way, teaching the whole counsel of God, that those who are unconverted and remain in their sins have it testified to their consciences that so long as they remain in unbelief, they are still in their sins. John Calvin spoke about this in, I think, a very wise way. The power and authority to bind, therefore he's talking about the keys of the kingdom, which bind as well as loose. The power and authority to bind is likewise granted to the ministers of the gospel. It must be observed, however, that this does not belong to the nature of the gospel, but is accidental. For were it not that the reprobate, through their own fault, turn life into death, the gospel, would be to all the power of God to salvation. But as many persons no sooner hear it, than their impiety openly breaks out and provokes them more and more the wrath of God. To such persons, its savor must be deadly. And in this, there is no difference than that which the prophets of old had to proclaim. There was a special reproach on the honor of God when the prophets falsely said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
This is why the minister must not be someone who is just a man-pleaser, trying to tell people what they want to hear. Indeed, the minister of the gospel must be prepared for the rage and fury of sinners, whether on the street or in the context of the covenant congregation. For if they preach the word faithfully, then surely it will agitate those with a bad conscience. Jeremiah 15, verse 19 speaks of this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, If thou return, then will I bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fence, brazen wall, and they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. There were so many other places we can multiply the examples. But let us hasten on to the third point, and that is your relationship to preaching. Having seen that it is commanded by Christ and seen that the very things of salvation hang upon it, for it is a discriminating ministry that distinguishes the convert from the false Christian and the unbeliever, we must therefore earnestly ask, what would the Lord have us to know, each one of us, but our own relation to preaching? Well, the first exhortation I would say is that we, each one of us, must submit Submit to the preaching of the word. Indeed, we read, did we not, that the apostle spoke to Timothy and he said that as an attendance to doctrine, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What would be the inverse of that? Well, a minister does not hear his own preaching, does not himself hear the word of Christ and daily repent and believe in the Lord, we would have to say is not converted at all. Terrible to consider. Someone who does not attend to his doctrine, he would destroy himself and his hearers. And so it is the minister in the first place must be he who would submit to the full counsel of God. How can he call others to repentance if he does not repent himself? How can he walk holy if he does not strive with his might to walk holy before the Lord? How can he call people to believe and trust in the Lord if he does not trust in the forgiveness of his own sins in the blood of Christ Jesus? But so also with every one, everyone must attend to the word of God and submit to it. For it is not the word of man, it is the word of God. Second Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables, unto stories. There are those who would say preaching should be story time. It should be entertainment. It should be that which piques our curiosity. They want to hear something novel, something new. And so it is that there is this contagious disease of itching ears. Rather than gladly receiving the word for what it is, rather than laying it up in their hearts, there is a murmuring and a complaining, a contentious spirit concerning the word of the Lord. So it is. This is to be distinguished from those who have a sincere concern about preaching, whether it is fully biblical, whether it addresses specific sins, whether it exhorts sufficiently into the promises of grace. Such things are most important. But whether such preaching uh, suits one's own tastes or liking is utterly irrelevant. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, we see uh, that the commission given to the prophet Isaiah was not an easy calling, but one that was especially to agitate 
a sinful and disobedient people. It says, go tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their ears, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Oh, dear sinner, I would pray that this is not true for you, that the preaching of the word is no interest to you, that where there is the faithful proclamation of the scriptures, this is not enough for you. I would say that if you find these symptoms of a heart and a and an ear and a, a soul that is not desiring to hear the word, then this points to deep spiritual problems. You need to humble yourself under the hand of God. You ought to desire earnestly that you would come into the presence of God where his preached word is present and that it would be received in your own soul. We say submit, but we also say prepare, prepare. This is the most important thing that happens in the whole universe, brothers and sisters. Without hyperbole, we may say that where the Lord Christ himself addresses his people by the preaching of the word, it is the most important thing that takes place in the whole wide creation. So it is, we ought to think, how is it that we prepare to receive the preaching of the word? The shorter, the larger catechism, I should say, gives us some good advice, and indeed biblical counsel. What is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Let me have a word especially for the heads of the households, the husbands and the fathers. How is it that you prepare your family to come into the presence of God in the preached word? Would it not be most important that you, of all members of your family, would indeed say a prayer before you head out the driveway, Lord, help us, help us to rightly receive your word this morning? Around the dinner table, as you're pouring out the cereal, maybe meditate on the scripture that's to be read and preached from, and it can begin to mull it over as you make your way to church. Or perhaps for the heads of household in particular, it would be profitable for you to jot down some of the main heads and notes of the teaching of the sermon so that you in the afternoon or in the evening can, or throughout the week following, can seek to briefly remind your family of what the sermon was about. Ask questions about it. Stir up godly conversation so it's not just in one ear and out the other. And I would say similar principles could be applied not only to the heads of households, but each person individually. Support. It's a plain teaching of the Word of God. The Church of Jesus Christ is called to support the ministry of the Gospel. First of all, through the prayers. Indeed, we should expect no blessing on the preaching if there's not regular prayers that the preaching would exalt Christ, that it would be faithful, and that it would be sealed by his spirit unto the souls of all who hear, that they would be brought into a right acquaintance with the ways of salvation, that they would be edified and built up in the truth. We do not expect that this will happen automatically. We must pray for it. We must pray indeed for more men to be risen up from our midst. That, as we've said before, that many laborers for the harvest would be sent out throughout this world in lands both distant and near, in churches both in the Reformed communion and in all biblical churches, that there be a mighty groundswell of men who have a burden for souls. But we would say also, in addition to prayer, there is the issue of financing the ministry of the gospel. And indeed, there's not a small amount of uh, exhortations in the scriptures about this. Let me simply quote from 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well 
be counted worthy of double honor, especially that they that labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. You see a similar teaching in 1 Corinthians 9. And verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. And then down in verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's been my honor to know a number of men who've labored bivocationally. I knew one man, man in seminary who was going to a church of only 10 people in a denomination that probably had about 100 people in it. And he was planning to work full-time job and also to preach uh, two sermons every Sunday in a faithful Reformed church, all while homeschooling his, his, um, his family and so forth. And I think of such things, and I think, well, if, if men are called to such work, we, we can give thanks that the Lord gives them the grace to persevere. We can also say that it is a reproach on the honor of Christ. It is a robbery and a scandal that men who are faithful should not be given the opportunity to labor full-time for souls. This is the most important work there is, the most delicate and the most um, carefully uh, gifting needs to be deployed in it. And so it ought to be the full-time labor of a minister, and so it ought to be of the first fruits of the church given to ensure that the preaching of the gospel is preserved not only for our generation, but for those to come. In Genesis 14, verse 18, we read of that Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, but also a priest, how he blessed Abram and the Most High God, and then Abraham, years before the law of Moses came, gave a tithe, a tenth of all he had, showing that this principle of giving a tenth of your income to the worship of the Lord is indeed biblical and applicable to all generations. And indeed, we can multiply the cases that reinforce this, that the giving of the Christian is part of his worship and service of the Lord, not optional, but required, not for the sake of any man, but for the sake of the honor of Christ. Finally, we would say welcome. The relationship to the preaching should be to welcome others into the embrace of Christ. Sometimes it may be difficult, children, for you to listen, and sometimes even small children can wiggle and make noise in church services, but we want to tell you that you are welcome here. We want you here. And we give support for that, the fact that all children are welcome into the presence of Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Timothy himself, it is said of him, that a child thou hast known, that of a, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We're thankful, children, that you're not sent out and told you have no place here. No, you're welcomed in the preaching of the word. We want it to make you wise unto salvation. For we believe as a church that how we treat children, that is how we treat Christ. And so for those of, of you who sacrifice some of your time and energy to ensure that as many children as possible can be sitting through the worship service, I commend you. And we should, uh, as a church family, have that as our heart's desire. But not only so for our children, but for anyone. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, it speaks of an example of someone from the outside of the church who is invited in, and it is used of them to bring them unto a knowledge of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. It's a great thing to bring, invite people to church. We will never change our worship in order to conform to the desires of unbelievers. We'll never change the preaching of the gospel or the doctrine of the gospel to conform 
to unbelievers. But still, we should expect that the Lord will bless the preaching of the word to those who are brought into the midst of the gathered congregation. So let us be steadfast to invite friends and family, co-workers, neighbors to the preaching of the gospel. Well, well, brothers and sisters, we've considered this great matter of the spiritual authority of the church, the preaching of the holy gospel. May we receive this blessing for generations to come. The Lord would be in the midst of us. May we, each one of us treasure in our hearts this gospel of peace. Amen.